War and Peace, Book Nine, Chapter Twelve, read for LibriVox.org by Andrew Coleman. Before the beginning of the campaign, Rostov had received a letter from his parents, in which they told him briefly of Natasha's illness and the breaking off of her engagement to Prince Andrew, which they explained by Natasha's having rejected him, and again asked Nicholas to retire from the army and return home. On receiving this letter, Nicholas did not even make any attempt to get leave of absence or to retire from the army, but wrote to his parents that he was sorry Natasha was ill and her engagement broken off, and that he would do all he could to meet their wishes. To Sonia he wrote separately, Adored friend of my soul, he wrote, nothing but honour could keep me from returning to the country, but now, at the commencement of the campaign, I should feel dishonoured not only in my comrades' eyes, but in my own, if I preferred my own happiness to my love and duty to the fatherland. But this shall be our last separation. Believe me, directly the war is over, if I am still alive and still loved by you, I will throw up everything and fly to you, to press you for ever to my ardent breast." It was, in fact, only the commencement of the campaign that prevented Rostov from returning home as he had promised, and marrying Sonia. The autumn in Otradno with the hunting, and the winter with the Christmas holidays and Sonia's love, had opened out to him a vista of tranquil rural joys and peace, such as he had never known before, and which now allured him. A splendid wife, Children, a good pack of hounds, a dozen leashes of smart borzois, agriculture, neighbours, service by election, thought he. But now the campaign was beginning, and he had to remain with his regiment. And since it had to be so, Nicholas Rostov, as was natural to him, felt contented with the life he led in the regiment, and was able to find pleasure in that life. On his return from his furlough, Nicholas, having been joyfully welcomed by his comrades, was sent to obtain remounts, and brought back from the Ukraine excellent horses, which pleased him and earned him commendation from his commanders. During his absence he had been promoted captain, and when the regiment was put on war footing with an increase in numbers, he was again allotted his old squadron. The campaign began, the regiment was moved into Poland on double pay, new officers arrived, new men and horses, and above all, everybody was infected with a merrily excited mood that goes with the commencement of a war, and Rostov, conscious of his advantageous position in the regiment, devoted himself entirely to the pleasures and interests of military service, though he knew that sooner or later he would have to relinquish them. The troops retired from Vilna for various complicated reasons of state, political and strategic. Each step of the retreat was accompanied by a complicated interplay of interests, arguments and passions at headquarters. For the Pavlograd Hussars, however, the whole of this retreat during the finest period of summer and with sufficient supplies was a very simple and agreeable business. It was only at headquarters that there was depression, uneasiness, and intriguing. In the body of the army, they did not ask themselves where they were going or why. 
If they regretted having to retreat, it was only because they had to leave billets they had grown accustomed to, or some pretty young Polish lady. If the thought that things looked bad chanced to enter anyone's head, he tried to be cheerful, as befits a good soldier, and not to think of the general trend of affairs, but only of the task nearest to hand. First they camped gaily before Vilna, making acquaintance with the Polish landowners, preparing for reviews, and being reviewed by the emperor and other high commanders. Then came an order to retreat to Svensiani, and destroy any provisions they could not carry away with them. Svensiani was remembered by the hussars only as the Drunken Camp, a name the whole army gave to their encampment there, and because many complaints were made against the troops, who, taking advantage of the order to collect provisions, took also horses, carriages, and carpets from the Polish proprietors. Rostov remembered Svensiani because on the first day of their arrival at that small town he changed his sergeant-major, and was unable to manage all the drunken men of the squadron who, unknown to him, had appropriated five barrels of old beer. From Svensiani they retired further and further to Drissa, and thence again beyond Drissa, drawing near to the frontier of Russia proper. On the 13th of July, the Pavlograds took part in a serious action for the first time. On the 12th of July, on the eve of that action, there was a heavy storm of rain and hail. In general, the summer of 1812 was remarkable for its storms. The two Pavlograd squadrons were bivouacking on a field of rye, which was already in ear but had been completely trodden down by cattle and horses. The rain was descending in torrents, and Rostov, with a young officer named Ilyin, his protégé, was sitting in a hastily constructed shelter. An officer of their regiment, with long moustaches extending on his cheeks, who after riding to the staff had been overtaken by the rain, entered Rostov's shelter. I have come from the staff, Count. Have you heard of Ryevsky's exploit? And the officer gave them details of the Sultanov battle, which he had heard at the staff. Rostov, smoking his pipe and turning his head about as the water trickled down his neck, listened inattentively, with an occasional glance at Ilyin, who was pressing close to him. This officer, a lad of sixteen who had recently joined the regiment, was now in the same relation to Nicholas that Nicholas had been to Denisov seven years before. Ilyin tried to imitate Rostov in everything, and adored him as a girl might have done. Strijinsky, the officer with the long moustache, spoke grandeloquently of the Sultanov Dam being a Russian Thermopylae, and of how a deed worthy of antiquity had been performed by General Rayevsky. He recounted how Rayevsky had led his two sons onto the dam under terrific fire, and had charged with them beside him. Rostov heard the story, and not only said nothing to encourage Strijinsky's enthusiasm, but on the contrary looked like a man ashamed of what he was hearing, though with no intention of contradicting it. Since the campaigns of Austerlitz and of 1807, Rostov knew by experience that men always lie when describing military exploits, as he himself had done when recounting them. Besides that, he had experience enough to know that nothing happens in war at all as we can imagine or relate it and so he did not like Strijinsky's tale, nor did he like Strijinsky himself, 
who, with his moustaches extending over his cheeks, bent low over the face of his hearer, as was his habit, and crowded Rostov in the narrow shanty. Rostov looked at him in silence. In the first place, there must have been such a confusion and crowding on the dam that was being attacked, that if Raevsky did lead his sons there, it could have had no effect except perhaps on some dozen men nearest to him, thought he. The rest could not have seen how or with whom Raevsky came onto the dam, and even those who did see it would not have been much stimulated by it. For what had they to do with Raevsky's tender paternal feelings when their own skins were in danger? And besides, the fate of the fatherland did not depend on whether they took the Sultanov dam or not, as we are told was the case at Thermopylae. So why should he have made such a sacrifice? And why expose his own children in the battle? I would not have taken my brother Petya there, or even Ilyin, who's a stranger to me, but a nice lad, but would have tried to put them somewhere under cover, Nicholas continued to think, as he listened to Stradzinski. But he did not express his thoughts, for in such matters, too, he had gained experience. He knew that this tale redounded to the glory of our arms, and so one had to pretend not to doubt it, and he acted accordingly. "'I can't stand this any more,' said Ilyin, noticing that Rostov did not relish Stradzinsky's conversation. "'My stockings and shirt, and the water is running on my seat. I'll go and look for shelter. The rain seems less heavy.' Ilyin went out, and Stradzinski rode away. Five minutes later, Ilyin, splashing through the mud, came running back to the shanty. Hurrah! Rostov, come quick! I've found it! About two hundred yards away, there's a tavern where ours have already gathered. We can at least get dry there, and Mary Hendrikovna's there. Mary Hendrikovna was the wife of the regimental doctor, a pretty young German woman he had married in Poland. The doctor whether from lack of means or because he did not like to part from his young wife in the early days of their marriage, took her about with him wherever the Hussar regiment went, and his jealousy had become a standing joke among the Hussar officers. Rostov threw his cloak over his shoulders, shouted to Lavrushka to follow with the things, and, now slipping in the mud, now splashing right through it, set off with Ilyin in the lessening rain, and the darkness that was occasionally rent by distant lightning. Rostov, where are you? Here, what lightning? They called to one another. End of chapter 12